You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Today, what we're doing is we're uh, beginning uh, the book of Exodus. The whole, you know, we are uh, New Testament uh, Christians, you know, we look at the New Testament, that's where our focus is. And what we tend to do is we forget just how important the Old Testament is. You know, when you, when you read the New Testament, every time Jesus or the apostles quote a scripture passage, it's from the Old Testament. Because what's the Old Testament to us was the current testament to Jesus and the apostles. And every prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, and there's apparently about 300 of them, every prophecy that he fulfilled comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament essentially looks forward to the coming of Jesus. And every passage, every chapter in, in the uh, Old Testament, somewhere or other in there, there is a thing that points towards the coming of Christ and what, G- what God has done uh, to us or for us in the gospel. And Exodus is no exception. Uh, some of the big things in Exodus is the Passover. And, uh, and Jesus was crucified at Passover time. Uh, in, in Exodus, there's the Ten Commandments. Uh, in Exodus, there is uh, uh, the, the sacrificial uh, rules are, are put in place. And Jesus is the, the uh, uh, sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the unblemished lamb of God. So Exodus is, is a particularly uh, good, cha- a good book for pointing towards the coming of Christ and, and all that God has done. So, uh, so I'm really quite excited that we're going to be going through Exodus and uh, chapter 1 is essentially the chapter that sets up the scene. It explains how the, um, why the Israelites are uh, slaves, it explains who this uh, Pharaoh is and why there is a problem and, uh, and it sets up the, uh, the reasons for uh, Moses ending up in a basket. So... One of the things that I'm sure you probably have noticed, right through the Bible, there's story after story after story of people who didn't do what God wanted. Right from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way through to the book of Revelation, there is story of people who are disobedient. I mean, you think about uh, the book of Exodus we're going to go through, there's Moses. Take Moses, for example. Now, you would think, well, he's like this superhuman prophet and he's like the most important person in, you know, in, uh, in the Old Testament. Yeah, but have a look at what Moses does. Now, we're not going to read these passages. If you're not familiar with them, you just have to take my word for it, that uh, Moses gets brought up in Pharaoh's palace. He's a big, big you know, he's a pretty important person, you know, one of the uh, uh, lords of, of the land. And he's out one day, uh, you know, and I personally believe that this whole thing about Moses being in the, uh, a basket and then being found by Pharaoh's daughter and being brought up in, uh, in Pharaoh's palace, this was God organising this, preparing Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, Moses was educated, so he knew 
all the important things about how to run a government and how to, uh, to deal with the people of Egypt. He, was, he knew the language, he'd been educated, he was ready to go. And then he goes out and he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. Now, was that a punishment that fit the crime? The Egyptian wasn't killing the Hebrew. So Moses has overreacted and the end result is he gets banished. He spends 40 years in the wilderness looking after sheep. That instead of being in Egypt to take the people out, he's got to go away and learn a bit of patience and learn how to look after sheep. Now it's probably a really good thing because he then spends the next 40 years looking after the Hebrews in the wilderness, so it's probably just as well he did that. But it wasn't God's will for him to kill that Egyptian. It just caused problems. God still used Moses, so it didn't, in the long run, it didn't stop God's will happening, but it wasn't what God wanted right then and there. And then, of course, you know, we know that Moses is not very good at listening to God because just to get his attention, he's got a burning bush and a loud voice. Like, he couldn't have just tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, Moses, Moses was not listening. A really spectacular thing to get Moses to listen. And so he says to Moses, I want you to go and do this. And Moses says, no, I'm not going to do that. So even when he's sort of burning bush, thunder and lightning, I want you to do this, Moses says, no, I don't want to do what you want. So Moses is one of the cases of people who are disobedient to God. The only reason he goes and does what God wants is because God gets angry with him. Like you push God till he gets angry with you, that's pretty disobedient. But it's not just Moses, Aaron, his brother. Aaron um, sets up a, a statue. Oh, I should be, look, I've got a picture about this. Here we go. There we, oh. there we go. That's Moses in the burning bush. And there's Aaron with this, these are sort of like classical artworks. I've got no idea who did them. But there's Aaron and the, and the golden calf and all the Israelites. How disobedient is that? All the Israelites worshipping this calf just after God has brought them out of Egypt with all of the wonders and miracles and the plagues and everything that they've seen and within a few days they're worshipping an idol instead of worshipping God. The book is full of people who are disobedient. However, in Exodus chapter 1, there's a little story in there that if you don't think about it, you just miss it. There are two women in there who are obedient to God, who do what God wants. And I'm talking about the midwives. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The interesting thing about this this is the first recorded example in all of history of civil disobedience. Now, I'm not saying, you know, rulers weren't disobeyed earlier, but this is the first time it is recorded that a government or a ruler has made a law and people have practised civil disobedience. And essentially what the midwives have said is it's more important to obey God than to obey man. Now, you've probably are familiar with the passage in the New Testament where Peter and the apostles are in front of the high priest in Acts chapter 5 
And the high priest says, we told you not to go and tell everybody about Jesus. Stop doing it. And Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. Now, here is the question. How did the midwives know what God wanted them to do? Now, you can't say, oh, they read it in the Bible. This is Exodus chapter 1. The Bible hasn't happened yet. You know, all you've, all you've got is Genesis and we don't even know if any, if all of that had been written down yet because Moses wrote that down and he probably didn't do it at this point. So how did they know what God wanted them to do? I think a clue occurs when Moses is at the burning bush because God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Moses doesn't say, who are they? And, and remember, we're talking several hundred years after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob lived. Probably about 400 years after they lived. Do you know the names of people who lived 400 years ago? You might if you've practised your genealogy. And that is the significance of this. The Hebrews knew their history. They knew about the interactions between God and his people. They knew that God had called Abraham out of the land of, uh, out of, the, land of the Chaldees, had taken him to the promised land and had said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and your offspring will be greater than the stars in the sky. And if you're out in the Middle East and you don't have any light pollution, the number of stars in the sky is pretty significant. So the Hebrew wives, the Hebrew midwives, well, gee, God wants to give us more children than there are stars in the sky. Us killing the children doesn't fit in with God's plan. And so... That's how they knew not to do this. But what were they risking? We know that this Pharaoh is capable of some pretty harsh commandments. He's going to have all the boys thrown in the river. It was scary. These midwives were afraid. Do you know how you know that? Because when they were called back to Pharaoh, they lied. They didn't say, like Peter and the apostles, they said, we have to do what God wants us to do. The midwives said, oh, Egyptian women are really wimpy, uh, unlike Hebrew women, or maybe I've used that language, but words to that effect. They didn't say, because God wants us to do this. They said, please don't hurt us, it's not our fault. You know, Hebrew women are not wimpy like Egyptian women. They were afraid. They were scared. They were uncomfortable. But you know what? They still did what God wanted. And if you look through the stories in the Bible, more often than not, when people are doing the will of God, it's in a circumstance where they're uncomfortable, afraid, under threat, or they're being asked to do something difficult. Doing God's will is not always the easy option. And the midwives 
uh, in this story, this is about Exodus chapter 1, the midwives are demonstrating to us, hey, you need to know your history, you need to know God's interaction with his people, you need to know what God wants you to do, you need to do it even if it's scary or threatening or uncomfortable. And then, in this story, the midwives are blessed with families of their own. And we know that good things come out of their obedience because not, not only do they get families of their own, but Moses ends up in a basket in the Nile to be picked up by Pharaoh's daughter to go on to become the one who leads the Egyptians out of, out of uh, Egypt. So, what do we learn from the midwives about doing God's will? It's more important than our will. It can be and often is scary and it brings about great good. So what should we do? How, how does that relate to us here at Burley Heads? So if you think that in order to know what God's will is, I'm going to tell you to read your Bible and pray every day, um, you're both right and wrong. Because you're 100% correct, reading your Bible and praying every day, great way to know God's will. But I'm not actually going to give you a sermon on how important it is to read the Bible and pray every day. Because I reckon you already know that. Um, I know that. I'm not always doing it, but I know it. And I'm expecting that you're probably in the same situation. What I am going to do is I'm going to summarise the will of God for you. I reckon I can do it in one minute. Uh, and that was not, that's not meant to save you reading the Bible yourself. It's just meant, just means that I can uh, get it all together in one little package. So in, uh, in one minute's time, this is what God wants of all of us as Christians, not just the ones in this room, but all right around the world. He's got four things that he wants. These are things that Jesus said commands that Jesus gave to us in one minute. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And then when he was talking to his disciples, he gave them a new commandment to love one another. He said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then finally, as he was uh, leaving, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, that was probably closer to 30 seconds than a minute, so I reckon I've got time to do it all over again. All right, what should we do? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all of your strength. You know, uh, I guess all of us would say that we love God. But we probably don't really think about what that means to love him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Because essentially, God is asking us to love us with everything. And I think... That most of us do 
love God, but perhaps not to that level because it just it's much easier to believe in a God who loves us no matter what we do than to recognise that we need to change what we do to fit in with a God who loves us that much. There's a famous Italian general. His name was Giuseppe Garibaldi. He said in a speech to a bunch of Italians, he was trying to put together an army. And he said, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor food. I offer only hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles and death. This is the key sentence. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not merely with his lips follow me. Thousands of Italians followed him and he is considered to be the key person in the unification of Italy. He didn't get up and say, hey, glory, gold and, and you know, great things. He offered them difficulty and hardship but he said, if you really love your country, you will come with me. And in a sense, this is what God is asking us to do. Because Jesus said to us, if you follow me, you will have persecution and hardship. You know, Garibaldi didn't invent that. He was copying what Jesus said. You're not going to have a fun time, though you will have fun along the way. If you are fair income, loving God with everything, he is going to ask you to do things that are scary and difficult, but it will be rewarding. Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus used the example, the story of the Good Samaritan. Loving your neighbour as yourself means wanting good for other people and doing good for them, whoever they are. I don't know if I've talked to you before about the Emperor Julian. He was Emperor of Rome from 361 to 363 grew up in a Christian family, but all of his family was killed by uh, one of the emperors who saw them as a threat. He was spirited away and uh, was kept safe and um, uh, came to power in 361. He's called Julian the Apostate because he rejected Christianity and he wanted to re-establish the, uh, the gods of Rome and Greece. When he was a young fellow being educated, he was educated by Greek tutors who instilled in him the love of all things Greek. And so he wanted to bring back the Greek gods. And so for three years he tried to do this. And we have a letter that he wrote to the chief pagan priest in Galatia. And he's complaining about the Christians. He says to the priest, you've got to try harder. And his problem was that the Christians were too good at looking after the poor. He said, the Christians look after our poor better than we do. Do something. Give more money to the poor. Look after them better. He was a person who was the enemy of Christians and he was complaining that they're doing too good a job loving their neighbour. That's the sort of, that's what Jesus meant by love your neighbour. Do it, in, do it in such a way that when people see what you're doing, they will say, gee, this Christianity stuff, it's pretty powerful. And then, then Jesus gave this new commandment to love one another. In this, he's not talking about loving your neighbour. In this, he's talking about Christians and how they should love one another. 
as Jesus has loved us, sacrificially, wanting best for other people, but in particular, the household of faith, looking after one another, serving one another, and sacrificing for one another. Here's a picture of... um, I forget, Chartist Towers, uh, Church of Christ Choir in 1900. And um, you look at that, you've got men, you've got women, you've got old people, you've got young people, all together working to produce a choir, working to produce songs that are having an impact. That's a church where people looking after one another, working towards a common goal. And that's us here at Burley. Now that we're all together, young and old, We're working towards this common goal. And the common goal, what should we do, is making disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that he's commanded us. That's our job. Our job is to expand the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul writes that we don't all have the one job in this. We're not all called to stand on street corners and harass passers-by. Everybody has a different role in this. Some are support people. Some are prayers. Some are people who pray for the, those. And others are people who go out in public and, and uh, do the face-to-face stuff. But we're all involved in this because this is the job of the church. The job of the church is not just to get together and have fun on a Sunday. We can go off and join a bowling club or a surfing club or something like that and do that. The job of the church is to go out and make disciples and Sunday is where we get our marching orders, where we get encouraged in the things that we've been doing and where we get to encourage each other in our own discipleship. Older people who have decades of lived faith experience can use that experience to help younger people. Younger people who've still got that enthusiasm and first love for Jesus will find that enthusiasm catching for people who have been a Christian so long they've forgotten what it was like when they first met Jesus. So making disciples, that is our claim, that is our, our, our reason for existence. Steve's already mentioned Alpha. I was going to throw it in the sermon, so I'll cut a little bit out here. It's not too late. I've done Alpha five time, four times. This will be my fifth time, and I reckon I will still learn new stuff along the way. So if you haven't signed up for Alpha, do. Hebrews 10, verses 24 to uh, to 24. That's very clever of me, isn't it? Um, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another. Build one another up so that we are better at going out and making disciples. I just throw this line in because I think it's important for us to remember that obedience is what we are called to do. It's much better than sacrifice. It's much better than anything else that we can do. Obeying God. And you think about those of you who are parents, when you tell your kid, eat up your ice cream and he does it, is he being obedient? Yeah, you told him to do it. But if you tell him, clean up your room and he does it, which is the obedience that's been more a challenge for him? God wants us to obey him even in the difficult and scary things. It's no challenge to obey God when it's easy. It's much harder. Like 
It's not scary for me to stand up here and talk to you about Jesus Christ because you're all friends and you're all Christians and it's not a threat. Much harder to stand up and talk to even just one-on-one with some atheist who I've got to try and, and tell about the love of Christ without you know, um, all the, the negative possibilities that go through your mind. It's much more scarier. God doesn't give me much credit for standing up here and preaching. I get much more credit for going out there and, and doing the threatening stuff. That's true obedience, not just doing the stuff that's easy and fun. So, to sum it up then, think of the midwives obeying when obedience is scary. When it's easy, it doesn't count for much. When it's scary, it bears fruit for the kingdom of God. Are we, I would encourage us all to take Shipra and Pua as, as people to inspire us. Like them, we need to understand God's plan for our lives and for the church. And like them, we need to put that into practice and we may not see the good rewards that will come out of that. They may not have seen what Moses did when he came back from his exile looking after sheep. They might have been dead by then. But God will bring good out of our obedience. And that's today's ongoing challenge to all of his people, not just us here at Burley Head. It's a challenge though he is offering to us to do his goodwill. Are we up to that challenge? Can you love God? Love your neighbour? Love other Christians enough to make sacrifices? Can you love non-Christians enough to help make disciples? These are our targets according to God's will. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, the Bible, which inspires us with many great stories of people who did the right thing. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to live up to the expectations you have of us and to take fully hold of the the four things that you ask your people to do. To love you, love our neighbour, love each other and to love people enough to make disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.